Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, the book of Mark chapter 9. You might remember the following incident. It was nine years ago, 2003. A 27-year-old man was hiking in a remote canyon in the state of Utah. I can't remember the details, but he, his right arm became stuck under an enormous boulder, and he couldn't uh, move his arm. He couldn't move the boulder. It weighed 800 pounds or something like this. He couldn't break the boulder apart. He wasn't that concerned initially because he had food and water and uh, decided he would just wait it out. Five days later, he was still waiting, and his food and water were gone. He realized no one was coming, and he was faced with a choice. Uh, He could die, or he could sever his arm. An unimaginable unimaginable, uh, scenario and an unimaginable uh, decision predicament to face, Uh, he took out his dull pocket knife, and he cut through flesh, muscle, tendon, and bone, and then he walked out of the canyon. That is the message of today's text. That is the message of today's text. It is summarized in the quote from John John Owen, which is found at the top of the sermon notes. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Friend, you face a decision right now. And there are only uh, two options. There are only two choices. Kill sin. Sever it. Or it will kill you. And that is the message of our text. That is the message of our Lord Jesus Christ as it is unfolded to us in Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 42. Follow along as I read God's word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's our text. We've established the central message of this text again in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now we want to unpack it. But before we do that, I need to make a brief textual comment. I am reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. In the English Standard Version, two verses are missing. And so if you have the ESV, find verse 43, where you actually see that number, 43, and move down and find 44. You won't. The next number is 45. Keep moving down and try to find 46. You won't. The next number is 47. Now, if you're using the King James Version or the New King James Version, you don't know what I'm talking about because those verses are there. Uh, Verses 44 and 46. If you're using the New American Standard Version, those verses are there, but they are in parentheses. What's going on here? Why the discrepancy? It's actually rather simple. In the oldest manuscripts, verses 44 and 46 are not there. And those are the manuscripts that the English Standard Version are using, employing, in this English translation. Uh, 
Verses 44 and 46, missing in the ESV, but do you know what they are? They're actually the statement we find in verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, for example, in the King James Version and in the New King James Version, after verse 43, you will find that phrase from verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, after verse 45, you will find that phrase from verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is likely that a scribe, at some point, desiring to emphasize what the Lord Jesus declares in verse 48, inserts as a marginal note that phrase after verse 44, and after verse 43, and after verse 45. I hope this is making sense. Because verse 43... Verse 45 and verse 47 each end with what? A reference to hell. An explicit reference to hell. In verse 48, the Lord Jesus adds a horrible description of hell. It encompasses the three declarations. 43, 45, 47. Some scribe thought it would be a good idea for emphasis to repeat the phrase right there after verse 43, right there after verse 45, hence verses 44 and 46 in some translations. Nothing to worry about, nothing to fret about, because the phrase is entirely biblical. It is simply the 48th verse. And the 48th verse, the scribe is quite right, that verse, that statement, verse 48, does apply to that declaration concerning hell in verse 43, and it does apply to that declaration concerning hell in verse 45. That's my textual note. If I confused you, lay it aside, speak with me afterwards, and I'll hit the repeat button and try to go over that all again with you. But just in case someone was worrying, thinking their Bible was a defect and you were going to send it back and ask for a, uh, a refund or track down Chris and ask for a refund out here, you're not getting a refund. There's no problem there. It's not a defect. It is the way it is supposed to be. That textual note aside, we're clear as to the message of these verses, the message of the Lord Jesus, be killing sin or it will be killing you. How are we going to unpack this? Simply, first of all, I'm going to try to explain what the Lord Jesus is saying in the context to his disciples, emphasizing three truths he's conveying to them, three truths that the Lord Jesus conveys to the disciples in this context of Mark chapter 9. And then we're going to expand and build on that and consider three lessons concerning mortification. Mortification is a fancy word meaning what? The killing of sin. Three lessons for us by way of application. So this sermon is split into two halves. What is the Lord Jesus saying to his disciples? Three things. And then three essential lessons concerning this act of mortification. uh, What it is, what it means to be killing sin. So we begin with the first part. What precisely, what exactly is Jesus telling his disciples in these verses? Number one, Jesus is telling them why they must deal with their pride. He is telling them. Why they must deal with their pride. The issue of their pride arises in the immediately immediately preceding verses. Verses 33 to 41. There, the disciples' pride is evident in two incidents. In the first incident, the disciples are actually discussing among themselves. They are actually arguing among themselves who among them is the greatest. It is the desire to be superior. It is the longing for superiority. In the second incident, the disciples actually resent another follower of the Lord Jesus who is involved in ministry and who is doing the work of the Lord, yet who refuses to follow the disciples. They resent it. If that man's following Jesus, they should be following us. And there it is the longing, there it is the desire for exclusivity. And so their pride has bubbled, it has risen to the surface, it is seen in these two incidents, the Lord Jesus addresses their pride, verses 33 through to verse 41, and now in verse 42, he tells them why they must 
deal with their pride. Look at what he says. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There, that is the disciples' egotistical preoccupation with superiority and exclusivity will cause others to sin. They must deal with it. In order to avoid being a stumbling block, in order to avoid being a cause of sin in the lives of others, they must deal with it. And now the Lord Jesus employs a a graphic description. I don't know if this was some sort of cruel and unusual punishment in the days of the New Testament, but it certainly strikes me as cruel and unusual. But he's trying to shock them. He's trying to shock us. He's saying, look, that man who causes another believer, one of these little ones who believes in me, causes him to stumble, causes him to sin through his egotistical preoccupation with superiority and exclusivity. Hear this, get it, and get it good. You see that millstone over there, that great weight. That man would be better off if we tied him up, put him in a boat, sailed out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, tied that millstone to the end of the rope, and threw him overboard. Wow. Talk about graphic. Talk about a horrible description. Jesus is seeking to convey to his disciples in the clearest terms possible, they must deal with their pride. Friend, Jesus is saying to us, in the clearest terms and expressions possible. We must. There is no other option. There is no alternative. We must deal with our pride. We cannot minimize and we dare not trivialize the devastating effects and impact that our pride has in the lives of others. The number of church meetings I have sat in on in my short, relatively short life in which believers were being torn apart for one reason and one reason alone, pride. The number of married couples across the table from whom I have sat whose marriage was disintegrating before my very eyes and their very eyes whose marriage was simply falling apart for one reason. Oh, they were pointing to so many different things, but one reason at the root of it all, their pride. The number of families I have seen broken apart, the number of relationships I have seen strained, the sin and the stumbling that I have witnessed, you have witnessed, and at the root cause of it all lies our pride. Well, Jesus is telling them why they must deal with it. And they must deal with it in the most violent terms possible. And that brings us to the second thing he tells them. Verses 43 through 48. He tells them how they must deal with their pride. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. The start of verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. This is, this is an, ex, an expression of speech known as hyperbole. Hyperbole is an expression of speech in which we use exaggeration for the, for the sake of emphasis. And so Jesus isn't saying, okay, your right hand does something bad, sever it. Your right eye does something bad, cut it out. Your foot makes you sin somehow, cut it off. That's not how he is to be interpreted. He is speaking by way of hyperbole. And he is pointing us to what? He is pointing us to how violently we must deal with our sin. How radically we must deal with our sin. And in particular for the disciples... 
how serious they must be when it comes to addressing this mother of all sins, this root of all sins, this sin of all sins, their pride. They must deal with it violently. They must hack it to pieces. That's what he is saying. The right hand, the right foot, the right eye, the eye, the hand, the foot, whatever. It is all pointing to the cause of sin. You get to the root cause and you are to kill it. The danger of leading others into sin is only eliminated when we deal with our pride. Let me repeat that. The danger of leading others into sin, the danger of being a stumbling block to others, the danger of destroying, the danger of tearing down, it is only eliminated when we deal with our pride. We must kill pride's inward impulse. And we must kill pride's outward expression. That's the second thing the Lord Jesus is telling them. The third thing is found in verses 49 and 50. He tells them what the result of this radical surgery will be. He tells them what the result of this radical surgery will be. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. I think that speaks of judgment, coming judgment. Verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's obscure. It's rather strange. We can shed light on it when we go to the Old Testament. And in particular, when we go back to the Levitical offerings and what we read of in the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your grain offerings, you shall offer salt. Why? Five Levitical offerings. Four of those offerings had to do with sin and atoning for sin. One of those offerings, the grain offering, actually had nothing to do with sin. It was an offering of what? Dedication. It was an offering of what? Consecration. And that is, what it, that is what is in view in Romans chapter 12 where Paul exhorts us believers to do what? To present our bodies, our lives, as living sacrifices upon the altar. It is the grain offering. We are to present our lives daily as a grain offering. It is, a, it is an act of dedication. It is an act of consecration. It is an act of commitment. And yet we're riddled with sin. And so even our grain offerings, even these free will offerings... Our lives, as we bring them and we present them to God in an act of dedication and as an act of consecration, they must be what? Seasoned with salt. What is the salt? It is God's grace. In the context, what in particular concerning God's grace? It is the grace of mortification. It is the true salt. Mortification is the true salt wherewith this offering must Be seasoned. And so I can offer my life to God. But if my life is void of mortification, there is no salt and it is unacceptable in God's sight. I must heed Paul's admonition in Romans 12 verse 1 to present my body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is my reasonable service of worship. And yet it must be seasoned with salt. That is with the grace of God. Grace seen, evident in the mortification of sin. When that takes place, the mortification of pride, what will be the result? Look at Christ's very last statement at the end of the chapter. Have salt in yourselves. What's the result? And be at peace with one another. Peace is only achieved through this seasoning with salt. Peace is only achieved through the mortification of sin, the mortification of pride. That is the point that the Lord Jesus is making. Friend, do you want to repair your marriage? Do you want to refrain from exasperating your children? Do you want to heal divisions within the church? Do you want to abound in faith and in hope and in love? Do you want to overcome fear and worry? Hear this sentence. These are exercises in futility without first mortifying. First things first, brothers and sisters, it must be first things first. We must deal with our self-love. We must deal with our overinflated opinion of ourselves. 
We must deal with our desire to be noticed and esteemed. We must deal with our pride. We must be seasoned with salt, the salt of mortification, the grace of mortification whereby we kill our pride. And the result will be what? Peace. Then we have something to build on. Then we have something to work with. And these are the three truths which the Lord Jesus is conveying to his disciples. Number one, again, he tells them why they must deal with their pride. Number two, he tells them how they must deal with their pride. And number three, he tells them what the result of this radical surgery will be. So much for part A. That's part one. We come now to the second part. We come now to to consider, to contemplate, what are the essential lessons for us in this text And I'm going to convey these lessons by way of questions, three questions. And if you're using the sermon notes, you'll see them there. Very simple questions, nothing complicated about it. What, why, and how? And so by that first question, I mean, well, what? What are we to kill? What are we to put to death? What precisely are we to mortify in the light of this text? The second question, how, or why, rather. So what is the the impetus? What is the motivation Uh, Why should we mortify? And then third question, we enter the realm of the specifics, the means, how. So question number one is what? Incidentally, we find the answers to all three questions in verses 43, 45, and 47. As a matter of fact, maybe it would be most helpful if I just gave you these answers in verses 43, 45, and 47 right up front. So the first question is, what are we to mortify? And so look at what the Lord Jesus says in verse 43. If your hand. Look at verse 45. If your foot. Look at verse 47. If your eye. Guess what? The mortification of sin deals with my mortification of my sin. Not the mortification of my spouse's sin. Not the mortification of my neighbor's sin. Not the mortification of my children's sin. Not the mortification of my friend's sin. The object of mortification for me is my sin, your foot, your hand, your eye. That's the answer to the question, what? We'll come back to it and develop it in a moment. The answer to the question, why? Why should we mortify these things? Again, the answer is found in verses 43, 45, 47. Look at the middle of verse 43. Here's the answer to the question, why? It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Again in verse 45, right in the middle of it. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Middle of verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. There's the answer to the question, why? Now to the answer answer to the question, how? Again in verses 43, 45, 47. Start of verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. So 43, 45, 47. The key for answering these three questions. The answer is found in each of those verses. And So come with me now to the first. What, what precisely are we to mortify? Your hand, your foot. Your eye. The Lord Jesus is making it crystal clear, uh, quite painfully clear, that the object of mortification is us. As a matter of fact, that the object of mortification resides within us. He has already led us and the disciples down this road. Turn with me back to Mark chapter 7 and look at what he says there. This is by way of reminder. We were here maybe six or seven weeks ago. And look at what Jesus says beginning in Mark chapter 7, verse 20. He's speaking with the disciples. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, 
pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. There is the object of mortification. My hand, my eye, my foot, my heart, and the darkness, the pervading darkness and wickedness of my heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Sin is not merely a matter of actions and of deeds. It is something within the heart. Sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease called sin. And it is not the symptoms that matter, but the disease. For it is the disease that kills and not the symptoms. The object of mortification is the disease which lies within and is rooted and embedded with our hearts. The medieval theologians, they got a lot of things wrong. They got a few things right. And one thing in particular which they got right, the medieval theologians, and this shows up in a lot of paintings, Dante and others from that era, is is how they classified some sins. And they would speak often of seven deadly sins. Sins. Have you heard that phrase? The seven deadly sins. And what is striking is this. Uh, they don't mention murder. They don't mention adultery. They don't mention homosexuality. They don't mention any of the things that most Christians today would likely mention. What do they identify as the seven deadly sins? Number one, and the root of all, pride. Exalting self as an idol. Number two, lust. Craving the forbidden. Number three, gluttony. Indulging the extravagant. Number four, greed. Craving what is newer, bigger, better, faster. Five, laziness. Reveling in ease. Number six, wrath. Indulging our desire to control. And number seven, envy, longing to be uppermost. These are the seven deadly sins embedded within the heart. And these must be the object of mortification. We are to kill something. We are to cut it off. We are to root it out. It is the sin which dwells within and is founded upon, rooted in, our own pride. And the second question is why? In the context, why, why is this so essential? Why is this so important? Well, look with me again at verses 43, 45, 47. And look at the, 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 the awful warning that the Lord Jesus gives in each of these verses. Beginning with verse 43, right in the middle. It is better for you. Here we go. It is better for you to enter life crippled. So cut, cut off your hand. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. He means what he says, friends. Let's be clear on that. Verse 45, right in the middle. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Right in the middle of verse 47, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And now here's that phrase in verse 48, which applies to those three proclamations concerning hell. He gives a twofold description in verse 48, where their worm does not die. Whose worm? People's worm. What is it? It's a metaphor for the conscience, where the conscience will gnaw and convict for all eternity. And a second description. And the fire is not quenched. What fire is that? It is our God who is a consuming fire. This is, this is horrible. Uh, the, the word hell in the Greek comes, comes from uh, the Old Testament, and it comes from a valley, a valley that was uh, known as uh, the Valley of Himon. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that word correctly. It actually, it might be Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. And so the Greek word Gehenna, which is translated hell, is a derivative. It comes from this, this valley, this valley of 
Hinnom, which was located uh, just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it was a place, when the Israelites entered the land of Israel, it was a place that was, that was already known. It was a place that already had a reputation because it was where many of the Canaanite peoples would sacrifice their own children to the gods. One god in particular whose name was Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. With the passing of time, the Israelites adopt the Canaanite religion. And two kings of Judah, Ahaz, and uh, the second, oh, the name escapes me, Manasseh. Ahaz and Manasseh. They, having adopted these Canaanite religions, do you know what these two kings of Judah did? They sacrificed their own sons in the valley of Hinnom. Tomolek. Jeremiah. Jeremiah describes this valley as the valley of slaughter. It's in the book of Jeremiah. He also describes it as the valley of Topheth. T-O-P-H-E-T-H. The Hebrew transliterated Topheth. It's a derivative of the word meaning drum. Why? Because they would bang the drum. There would be this echoing of drums throughout this valley to drown out the cries of the children being sacrificed to Molech. King Josiah, godly king, scraps it all. He puts an end to it all by God's grace. And he turns that valley into what? A garbage dump. Where everything from the city, everything would just be dumped. And they lit a fire which burned 24-7. That is the history You bring all of that up into the time of Jesus. And what does the Lord Jesus say? He uses that vivid in everyone's minds. The association in terms of the fire that burned 24-7. The association with the sacrifice of children. The association with, 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 with this evil in this place of torment. He brings that up. And it's a sensory overload you can imagine. And that is what he uses, that is what he employs as a descriptive for what is coming, hell. It is a place where the worm is never destroyed. Conscience will pierce, conscience will cry out, conscience will trouble, and conscience will torment for all eternity. And it is a place of unquenchable, unending fire. Friend, oh, get this, please get this. The message of the Lord Jesus is as follows. You suffer the pain of mortification now, or you will suffer the pain of hell for eternity. That is his message. I can't sugarcoat it. I can't minimize it. I can't downplay it. There it is, just this horrid declaration, this horrid, horrendous proclamation. Friend, this is how serious This is, you suffer the pain of mortification now, or you will suffer the pain of hell for all eternity. That is the answer to the question, why? This is serious. It shows us the gravity of sin. It shows us how disgusting sin is in the sight of a holy God. We get to the essence of our rebellion and the darkness of our hearts. There is no compromise. There is no middle ground. It is all or it is nothing. Your eye, cut it out. Your hand, cut it off. Your foot, cut it off. Get to the root of the problem, our pride, our sin within. Let me repeat it for a third time. Suffer. Friends, suffer the pain of mortification now, or suffer the pain of hell for all eternity. It brings us to the third question. How? How, how? how do I do this? And the answer again, in verses 43, 45, 47, right at the outset of verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear 
it out. That is mortification. Mortification. Let me dispel three false notions of mortification. Mortification is not the absolute annihilation of sin in believers. I am stuck with my sin until glory. You are stuck with your sin until glory. There is a day of liberation and transformation coming when the presence of sin will be annihilated, but that is not now. If we say we have not sinned, says John, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. So mortification is not the final annihilation of sin in our lives right now. Let me dispel a second false notion. Mortification is not the suppression of or cessation from sinful acts. So I, I, I could stop sinning, and that's good, so we, so we should. That is, that is an element of mortification, but it isn't enough. The true object of mortification is what causes sinful acts. It is the sin within. The third false notion I want to dispel is this. Mortification is not the castigation of the body. Some people think it is. If I just deprive my body, my physical body, of certain things, well, that means I'm dealing with sin. No. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his epistle to the Colossians, he says, hey, that, that has some semblance of wisdom, but in actual fact, it's completely misplaced. No, the object of mortification is within. So what, what, what is it? Let me give it to you in a very concise sentence. Mortification is the overthrowing of sin's dominion daily. That's it. Mortification is the overthrowing of sin's dominion daily. Joel Beakey gives the example of a missionary. Perhaps I've given it here before. Excuse me if I have, but it serves the purpose. He gives the example of a missionary who's somewhere in far off land and realizes that around his home, in his garden, there are these shrubs, brushes going, brush, brush that is growing that is poisonous. And he can't, he can't get rid of these things. He sprays them, he burns them, he tries to do all sorts of things, but each morning he goes out and there they are sprouting up through the earth again. What choice is he left with? Every morning he must go out and inspect the ground around his house and do what? Dig up the shrubs. That is mortification. It is overthrowing sin's dominion day after day, after day, after day, Beaky says, indwelling sin is like that poisonous shrub. It needs constant uprooting. Our hearts need continual mortification. The overthrowing of sin's dominion daily. What precisely does it look like? At this point, Trisha is going to help me out, and she's going to put some slides up here on the back. And I'm going to give nine behind me here on the project on the screen. I'm going to give you nine directions which come from the pen of John Owen. John Owen was known as the Calvin of England. Tremendous theologian, penned these f- over 400 years ago, and I don't think there's ever been anything that they're equal since. Nine directions to mortification as to what this looks like. Number one, cultivating a hatred of sin. That's what it means to overthrow sin's dominion daily. We must cultivate a hatred of it. We must understand that our sin robs us of our greatest treasure, communion with God. And understanding that, we make our sin the object of our hatred and we overthrow its dominion daily. Number two, developing a clear and abiding sense of the evil of sin. Developing a clear and abiding sense of the evil of sin. It wounds Christ. It grieves the Spirit. And it takes away our usefulness. Do we understand the evil of sin? Number three. Reflecting on the punishment our sin deserves. John Owen writes, What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace 
have I despised and trampled on. You ever think like that? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love? Is this the return I make to the Son for his blood? Is this the return I make to the Holy Spirit for his grace? Number four, fostering a constant breathing after deliverance from the power of sin. That's what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We all know what it is to be thirsty. We all know the joy and the sheer pleasure in quenching that thirst with water or some other form of liquid. And here, this, this, is, this, is, this is the idea that John Owen is employing here, that we must pant after, thirst after, hunger after deliverance. Number five, identifying our natural or temperamental proneness to sin. Some of us are more prone to certain sins than others. Some of us struggle with certain sins, more than others. And we need to identify that in ourselves. Natural and temperamental proneness to sin. Number six, guarding against occasions that lead to temptation. That's simply answering the question, what fosters temptation within? What stirs pride within? What stirs, what ignites envy within? What ignites lust within? What ignites those deadly sins within? Whatever the answer to that question, we avoid it. Number seven, refusing to concede ground to sin. It's impossible to fix bounds to sin, says John Owen. It is like water in a channel. If it once breaks out, it will have its course. And so you think of the Paluxy there, not that long ago, back in the spring, where we had quite the downpour of rain. And the Paluxy, the water flowed up over its, over the shores, and uh, the park down there flooded. There was absolutely nothing anyone could have done to what? Control it, stop it, get that water back in. That is what sin is like in our lives when we first give it an inch When we give it ground, it just flows over, bubbles over its boundaries, and there is no getting it back under control. Refuse to concede ground to sin. Number eight, meditate upon the inconceivable greatness of God. In other words, as Luther said, live Coram Deo, live before God's face. Understand that every moment of every day, 24-7, is lived before in the presence of a God to whom we will give an account. Number nine, seeking repentance. If repentance is not attended, says John Owen, with detestation of sin, so if our repentance, if our confession is not attended, accompanied by a hatred of the sin committed, it is not a piece of God's creating, but of our own manufacturing. What does he mean? simply means true repentance. A mark of true repentance is hatred. A mark of true repentance is turning. A mark of true repentance is forsaking. A mark of true repentance is mortifying. Seeking repentance. Nine directions to mortifying sin. Now, you take those nine directions, and I want to just throw a a big blanket over them all. And again, this is from the writings of John Owen, something he has, he has taught me. And this is, this is confirmed in, throughout Scripture. Just, just a truth over those nine directions. And we must not divorce these nine directions from this, from this overarching, all-encompassing truth. It is this. The death of sin is found in the death of Christ. Oh, that, that supersedes all of these nine directions, friend. The death of sin is found in the death Now go back with me to Mark chapter 9. And you'll remember that in this subsection, in Mark chapter 9 into chapter 10, the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples eight lessons. Eight very practical lessons. They've got issues. He's going to address these issues through these eight lessons. 
And yet in the midst of this section and these eight lessons, there are two explicit references to what? Calvary. And so we have the first right there in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. We cannot, we must not, we dare not divorce, separate what the Lord Jesus says in verse 42, our text, right through to the end of the chapter. We must not divorce what he says concerning the mortification of sin from Calvary's cross. Because it is in Christ's death that the death of sin is found. When we turn to Calvary's cross, when we turn to the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and when we think in terms of the mortification of sin and our our calling, our duty to, to cut it off, to tear it out, there are there are two wondrous truths that we must always ever have in view as we seek to deal with our sin, as we stand before Calvary's cross. The first is this. There at Calvary, we see why God has saved us. You think of the words of Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Never try to mortify your sin without first standing before Calvary's cross and contemplating why Christ died for us as a manifestation and revelation of the love of God. He was cursed that we might be justified. He was punished that we might be saved. At Calvary's cross, we see that God's love is not a trickling stream but a roaring river. At Calvary's cross, we see that God's love isn't a flickering candle, but a dazzling sun. Calvary's cross rectifies our love. Calvary's cross corrects our love, making the object of our love whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. He having first loved us, we love him. And out of our love for him, Our desire is to do what? Hate that which he hates. Put to death that which he despises. Mortify sin. The second truth is this, as we stand before Calvary's cross, not only do we see why God saved us, we see how God saved us. I think of the words, Paul's words in Romans 4, 5. One of my most favorite expressions in all of God's word. God justifies the ungodly. Oh, amen. Because that's me. God justifies the ungodly. And so as I gaze upon Calvary's cross, I see why. His love. And as I gaze upon Calvary's cross, I see how. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I see my sin, including my pride, reckoned, imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I see him bearing hell for me. I see him suffering the torment of hell as he experiences that alienation from his father when he has made sin for me, my sin imputed to him. And believing in him, I stand before God Justified, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ imputed to me. Then Paul asks a very pertinent, relevant question in Romans chapter 6. That being true, how then shall we continue in sin? It doesn't make any sense. If that is true, if that is what the Lord Jesus has done for me, If that is what and who I am now in God's sight, 
That if, if I am dead and buried to sin judicially in the Lord Jesus Christ, the penalty being removed, and I now stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, how shall we continue in sin? We can't. We're compelled. We're motivated. We're stirred on. Firstly, by the love of God as displayed at Calvary's cross. Secondly, by understanding who we now are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is awe. And it is reverence. And it is godly fear. And it is amazement. And it is gratitude. And it is thankfulness. And it is love. That now compels us to do what? Take heed to a passage like this. Take heed to warnings like this. Understanding his love. Understanding the significance of the cross. And now with love corrected. Now with love rectified. Now with love well directed. Putting to death sin in our lives. That is the message of the Lord Jesus to the disciples. That is the message of the Lord Jesus to us. And let me repeat it, the central theme, again in the words of John Owen, as we conclude, friend, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Our Father, may we indeed take these things to heart. May you, by your Spirit, indeed grant uh, illumination. And not only illumination to understand, but open the, the eyes of our hearts to embrace that your word might be deeply rooted and planted within. We praise you for Calvary's cross. And we praise you when we think of, of, of our own filthiness and our own sin and our own unworthiness. And we praise you that he who alone is worthy died for unworthy sinners, that we might become your righteousness. Oh, our God, may we never tire of it. May this never become... May we, never be, may we never become complacent. May this never become old news. Might this be news and great news each and every day of our lives, compelling us to live for you and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.